So please turn with me this morning to the book of Jude, verses 3 and 4. Before we begin our study in Acts, we're going to spend a couple of weeks just talking about these particular marks of a church and of our church, what makes us and our uh, some of the commandments in Scripture surrounding these ideas. So today in Jude, we're going to look at our command, the command to contend for the faith and what that means for us. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with it. <clears throat> Our Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ability to listen to it taught at any time because of the resources that we have available to us. We are thankful for the many ways that we can access your word and Lord we are sorry for the our still our lack of understanding our lack of desire for it and so Lord we pray that you would use your words to implant in us a desire for truth and for learning more and more about your truth that we might serve each other that we might serve this world in your name we pray. Amen. So as we come to this text, it made me think of a book by the, the late Dr. Sproul called Everybody's a Theologian. And it made me think of a quote by um, uh, Ligon Duncan, who's the president of RTS, Reformed Theological Seminary. He said this, he says, he said, do you think of yourself as a theologian? He said, you are, you know. And there are only two kinds of theologians, good ones and bad ones. always like that uh, quote. Words like theology and doctrine are making a comeback in the church, but are still largely kind of kept in the background. All right? Sayings like, it's not a religion, but it's a relationship, or no creed but Christ, are an example of some of the more prevailing ideas concerning our faith. The main idea of evangelicalism today is to personalize your faith. And with that, you remove from it any standard except your own. What does that lead to? Well, it ultimately leads to the removal of the Bible from many pulpits because the Bible doesn't line up with all the individual personal relationships that are out there. And so you can't talk about that. Um, And it's subjecting it to our quaint little devotional books and keychains and things like that. The Faith of the Average American Evangelical is just a series of cute little sayings without any real substance to it at all. And so to sum it up, the average churchgoer is a bad theologian. And that should concern us because we are those people. You might say We weren't called to be theologians. Well, I'm not called to do that. I just want a simple faith, nothing complicated. I've heard that a whole lot. The Christian faith is simple, but it is also inexhaustible, meaning we can never find its end. As Christians, we have a responsibility to share Jesus Christ. And as soon as we are asked questions about him, we also have the responsibility to answer those questions, not simply leave them to the ones who study and become theologians. Again, I don't think we're all that. In our text today, the writer, Jude, 
begins his letter to the churches by making a distinction between the faith that has been delivered once and for all to the saints and the false teaching in their day and time. We'll see that in this passage, I think it's very timely for us as well. We live in a very similar time as Jude. In fact, all time, all the way back to Adam, has been a time where the truth has been questioned. People want to live according to their own law. You don't have to go very far into the book to see that that happens very early, even in the garden. Jude makes this distinction, and for us, I think it's helpful that we consider, as we consider the values of our church, we value truth and the teaching of the truth, and so I think this passage is good for us. What should we do with that thing that we value? Well, we'll consider this text in three ideas. The faith delivered to the saints, the perversion of the truth, and then our responsibility concerning that truth. And so with that, let's read the text together today. Stand with me as I read from God's Word, the book of Jude, verses 3 and 4. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. This is God's Word. You can be seated. So we'll just jump right in. The first point, the faith delivered to the saints. You'll note first that in there in verse 3, Jude says, I found it necessary to write to you, or he was eager to write about the common salvation, but he found it necessary to write to them, appealing to them to contend for their faith. It's interesting that he initially wanted to write to them about the doctrines of salvation, but instead wrote to them about the problem of false teachers. The problem of false teachers is written about a lot in the New Testament. He may have written another letter about salvation, we don't know. But he does mention that we should contend for the faith. We'll talk about that contention a little later, but for now I want to focus on this idea of the faith. Faith here isn't used to denote the gift that was given to us from God, which we in turn placed in Him. The faith that this is talking about is our Christian faith. Those things that we believe, the message that was taught by Jesus and by the apostles that now many followers of him still teach and hear today. So what is this faith? Well, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15. A lot of our faith is tied up in this chapter, but I'm just going to read verses 3 and 4. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, it says, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He was buried and He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then He goes on. He appeared to Peter in the Twelve, and He continues on talking about those but notice what he says what is our faith that christ died as accordance with the scriptures 
he was buried and rose again in accordance with the scriptures. What scriptures is Paul talking about? The Old Testament, of course, talking about it, that Jesus, in accordance with the scriptures, died, was buried, rose again, that we might have a new life. It's a very simple faith, is it not? But what does all of that mean? Any Christian can say those three things. Jesus died for me. He was buried and he rose again for me. Why did he have to do that? Why does that matter that he rose from the dead? These are questions that we, as believers, must know the answers to. And these are simple questions, but yet their answers are profound. Again, they're pretty simple too, but you could write whole books on it, and people have been doing that for hundreds of years. In Ephesians 2, Paul says that this foundation that we believe in was built upon by the prophets and the apostles. What does he mean to do there? He's tying together the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, saying that these are the foundation of our faith. Peter refers to the law and the prophets as scripture, and he also refers to Paul as scripture. These things that inform our faith, teach our faith, and tell us what indeed we are to believe. So, here's a question for us as believers. Where do we learn the answers to these questions? Why did Jesus have to die? Why did he have to be risen from the dead? Very important parts of our faith. Well, of course, we have to read the scriptures, obviously, which that should go without saying that we have to have our heads in the Bible. If we want to understand the Bible and teach it correctly, we have to read it. We have to study it. We have to understand it. And we have a great many tools available to us to do that. A lot of times people will say something like this to me. Well, I want to study the Bible. I just, I just don't know how. It seems so complicated to me. But one thing the church has been doing since the beginning is to write these questions down and then provide an answer to that question right after the question. As early as the first century, the church had documents that were used to teach converts, new converts, to the Christian faith about what the church believes. These doctrines were written as summaries of what Scripture says about particular topics. They weren't to replace Scripture at all. You don't see them bound up in the early church's copy of God's Word, but they were used by the church in order to teach the doctrines. They called them lots of different things back then. Today we call these documents catechisms. We've been working through one called the Heidelberg Catechism during worship. Um, We've taught our children from the children's catechism. We have the Westminster Larger and Shorter Catechisms in our, as a part of our denomination's uh, constitutional standards. Want to know what we believe about anything? Read those catechisms. Want to know a succinct answer to questions like, why did Jesus have to rise from the dead? Read the catechisms. It's right there. Now, you may be able to be at a point in your faith that you're able to give answers to these questions, very good answers, succinct answers uh, to these kinds of questions. But frankly, I am not. I need to read these documents like these catechisms and the confessions a lot to help me to understand this is what Scripture is teaching. And then I go back to Scripture and say, yes, indeed, this is what Scripture is teaching. It's helpful. I'm not replacing 
scripture with a document like a shorter catechism or a Westminster confession or anything like that. But they are great summaries for men who knew their Bibles much better than I do, who wrote down these things. Are these documents without error? Error. Do we have, do we find errors? Sure. There's errors in these documents. Do we preach from them? Absolutely not. Do they contain a great summary of our faith? Yes. Absolutely. If you don't have a copy of these standards, I highly recommend getting one. Um, I may even have a spare one, probably do. They're free online. They're one of the best tools when it comes to studying this faith that we believe in. And again, let me just preface this by saying we're not replacing God's word. I would never, ever suggest that. Uh, You'll never hear me preaching from the catechism at all, but you might hear me quote from it. Why? Because it's a great way to summarize things that are can be complicated. Do you want to talk about Christ's resurrection? Well, for instance, 1 Corinthians 15 is a great chapter on that. But you can also read a really short summary about how these guys summarize that whole idea into a couple sentences, and it's helpful. So just an encouragement for us learning this truth and learning the faith that we have. And so second point is the perversion of the truth. Notice he goes on in verse 4. He says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Certain people have crept in. A sneaky way to write that, probably from outside the church that Jude is addressing. Whoever they are, we have to understand this, they were welcomed in, and not only were they welcomed in, they were allowed to teach, which should scare us a little bit. It also says that they were designated for this condemnation, could meaning the condemnation of being a false teacher, probably also in regards to their election, um, their fate eternally. Regardless, they were false teachers. They were ungodly people who had crept in and who were teaching the people of God, the wrong thing. So what is their false teaching? Well, the scripture says that they perverted the grace of God into sensuality, that they denied our only master, Jesus Christ. What does it mean to pervert grace into sensuality? Well, I think this could go several ways. I think obviously the direction is that the idea of uh, that grace, or the idea that the grace of God gives us pardon to go on sinning, which is usually called antinomianism or just lawlessness. Um, over and over in Scripture, Old and New Testaments, we are called to holy living. We are called to live as we ought to live, not to go on sinning because we have this grace of God. Nowhere in the Scriptures. Does the grace of God negate the fact that we are to live lives that are different from those of the world? If we think otherwise, we deceive ourselves. And so I think that's one thing that could be this sensuality. A horrible teaching that has entered into the church, unfortunately, in the last probably 100 years, definitely more so, I think, um, in the last 30 or 40 years, has it been more solidified as the church has kind of become to be watered down and walk away from the faith 
is that one need only pray a little prayer or go down front and have this encounter with the Lord and then write that date in your Bible because that date will be important to you. And then you somehow end up having faith in that date more than you do in the Lord whom you supposedly confess to. As long as you can look back at that day and say, on that day, I went down front in front of everybody and I confessed, then you're safe, right? You can live like hell after that as far as they're concerned. And this idea, holy living, has no importance to the Christian faith. Only this experience of that time that you said something in the front of the church. That's not a good doctrine. It's a dangerous doctrine. Another way this grace could be converted into sensuality is our reliance on experience. Again, kind of going on the same idea, which from the days of the apostles has been a way to control the people of God. As long as you feel good about it, it has to be right. The Greeks taught this. It was called Epicureanism. Christians have been borrowing from it ever since. Well, I know that they don't open their Bibles on Sunday, but I always feel good when I leave there, so it must be right. I don't like songs that don't cause me to feel like I'm worshiping. I don't feel close to God right now, so he's probably angry with me. And then the worst part of this is I want to feel close to God, so $1,000 into my ministry will be closer to him this year. Pretty sad how we've preyed upon emotions, not only the emotions of others, but our own emotions, causing us to believe the weird kinds of garbage that would lead us astray. And I think ultimately this has led many, many people away from the church in two different ways. You see this in, as children particularly age out of the church, so to speak, they, they pursue more rational things like science. And science has taken the place of the church. And they'll even, you'll even see things like science saves again when they like show some new uh, medical research or something like that as if science is the new God that they worship. They would never say that, but that's exactly what's going on. Or they go into more pleasurable experiences, hedonism, unholy living. Because if the church lets you live like this, why not just not go here and live however you want to? Ultimately, this type of perversion shows the ultimate perversion, which is what Jude goes on to say. They deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ, the Lord of creation, Savior of the world, who has been denied ever since Adam and Eve. What did Jesus say? Consider his words in John 15. Abide in me, which is just his way of saying, do what I say. If we abide in him, what did he say we would do? We would bear much fruit. And if we don't, what did he say would happen? We would be cut off and thrown into the fire. I think we could go on here. We've spent some time in the past talking about false teaching. I want to go on to what is being commanded here of us, our responsibility. Verse 3. I was eager to write to you about our common salvation... I th- but I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. To contend for the faith. We are called to do that. What does that mean? Well, 
The word here, to contend, is actually where we get our word agonize from, the idea of a struggle, an intense competition. We are commanded here to contend, to struggle against the enemy, which is often within, for our faith. Well, what is this struggle? The very idea of truth is under attack anymore. The idea that you could make a claim... Or that I could make a claim and defend it is contrary to this common thinking of the day which states that everyone can make equal and opposite claims and everyone can still be right. Silly. Or worse, that society gets to decide what truth is, which is always changing, of course, as if you've been alive in the last ten years, you've noticed a crazy amount of change. Whoever doesn't abide by whatever this changing truth is is wrong and usually not just wrong but you'll get punished somehow thankfully in this country that kind of punishment really isn't happening except for a few cases I think it's going to increase but in other countries to make a stand for the truth of Christ means that you're standing up to die so the question for Redeemer community is what are we going to do then to contend for this faith that has been given to us. What are we going to do when we're called to contend for the faith? It's enough for us, as, is it enough for us as, for in, as individuals to talk about it? How we stand up for our faith? But the question is really, what are we going to do as a church? Are we going to contend for the faith? Or are we going to just shrink back? This kind of contest, this, or this is the kind of contest where the winner gets a particular distinction. Standing for the truth is not always popular, but it's always right. So I want us to continue this discussion during Sunday school today. I want us to kind of look at ideas, how we can see, how we see ourselves doing this. But it's a good question for us. If we believe that we should contend for the truth, and we do believe that because the scripture says this very plainly here, then we have to ask ourselves, how then are we as a church going to do that? In conclusion, again, I believe we're all theologians. We all have beliefs about God. We all have beliefs about scripture. We have to do something with this truth that we have. We might want to put it under the couch. We might want to change it or fix it somehow, we might want to preach it faithfully. Which one are we going to do? The truth that we preach is that Jesus Christ died to save sinners. And that's all of us. Not just us, but everyone that we know. Do they know him? Have you told them? So brothers and sisters, let me ask you, pray for how God might use you to contend for the truth. Let me ask you also to pray for us as a church, Redeemer community, how we might contend for this truth that has been delivered for us. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we pray earnestly as we begin a new year, we hear from your word that we are to contend for this faith that has been delivered to us. Many men and women over the course of the years have died contending for this faith and oftentimes I fear we are comfortable with it and so Lord I pray that you would help us 
to see how we as a church can contend for the faith here in Murray, Kentucky. What, what might we do to see your truth go forward? Lord, help us, show us what we should do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.